same hate that's caused wars from religion Gender to skin color, the complexion of your pigment The same fight that led people to walkouts and sit-ins It's human rights for everybody, there is no difference Live on and be yourself When I was at church, they taught me something else If you preach hate at the service, those words aren't anointed That holy water that you soak in has been poisoned When everyone else is more comfortable remaining voiceless Rather than fighting for humans that have had their rights stolen I might not be the same, but that's not important No freedom till we're equal, damn right I support it March on with the veil over our eyes. We turn our back on the cause till the day that my uncles can be united by law. When kids aren't walking around the hallway, plagued by pain in their heart. A world so hateful, some would rather die than be who they are. And a certificate on paper isn't gonna solve it all, but it's a damn good place to start. No law is gonna change us. We have to change us Whatever God you believe in We come from the same one Strip away the fear Underneath it's all the same love About time that we raised up WBAI, I'm Jeff Simmons, and you are listening to our special coverage kicking off World Pride Month and the 50th anniversary later this month of the Stonewall Uprising. We've been talking about a number of challenges and achievements in the five decades since Stonewall, and one that is still very much present in the news today involves the ability of certain members of the LGBT communities, the T, in the military, to be uh, able to serve in the military. It was during the Clinton administration when gays in the military took a significant turn, but a compromise under the umbrella of that term uh, that we all came to know, don't ask, don't tell, uh, originated. Tanya Domi is an adjunct assistant professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and an affiliate faculty member of the Harriman Institute. Before her faculty appointment at Columbia in 2008, she worked internationally for more than a decade on issues related to democratic transitional development, including political and media development, human rights, gender and sexual identity issues, and human trafficking. In a 2011 article she had written, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, she wrote that, quote, today is a special day in American history. Indeed, the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law marked a major advancement in America's political compact to create a more perfect union by extending the rights of, to gays and lesbians to serve openly in the military. But she cautioned, there is a great need for more equality. We are not done. We are not finished until we are all equal together as one. Tanya joins me now. Welcome to WBAI. Oh, thanks, Jeff, for having me. So tell our listeners about your experience in the military. 
I yes, I served uh, from 1974 to 1990 during the full ban, which uh, the policy was from 1941 to 1993 that quote homosexuality is incompatible with military service unquote. And during the course of my career, I was investigated a number of times, including the Fort Devens lesbian. Uh, investigation, which is probably, arguably, one of the biggest, most significant witch hunts of lesbians in the U.S. Army during uh, the history of of the United States Army. And I was stationed at Fort Devens, which is was a base where people were training in military intelligence. And um, I w- made my first trip to a gay bar in Boston called The Other Side with five other women. I was just coming out. I wasn't out yet, really. We returned from a weekend in Boston, and I was immediately called into the security office, and I was Mirandized and being accused of being a lesbian. And that nightmare began, and the investigation lasted over 15 months, but I made a very good move in that, I had been a member of the ACLU during high school, and I told the other women that were being investigated, I'm calling the ACLU, I'm getting a lawyer. And I helped uh, some of those women get lawyers, and I was successful in fighting off that, that investigation. So the military's ban, talk about its origins and what the repercussions were if you were discovered to be gay. Right. It started as a medical uh, decision by doctors when the Army began to rev up uh, and bring people into the military in a massive way for World War II. And psychiatrists made the decision that gay people were psychologically not healthy and therefore medically unfit to serve. And if you were discovered... Uh, during those years from 41 to 93, you could be discharged with less than an honorable discharge for a considerable period they called the blue discharge. Blue discharges, it ruined people's lives. Uh, people were unemployable, particularly probably men were asked, you know, when they applied for a job or they were veteran. And if you had less than an honorable discharge, you were going to pay really on economic grounds. Lots of people were traumatized. Uh, they were disowned by their families. Uh, many people ended up uh, alcoholics. I mean, some of the classic horrible stories that we heard about what happened to gay people and lesbians uh, during those years from 41 to 93. Well, I was undergoing this investigation at Fort Devens. A number of women turned themselves in because they said, I'm going to be caught anyway. People started drinking. People were taking drugs. Um, they used uh, under, uh, undercover agents that were compromised that would uh, tell security that somebody was gay. It was a horrible environment. So if there was anything that was damaging to unit cohesion. It was, in fact, the 
the policy itself. And as we all know, it came to pass that in, when Bill Clinton declared his candidacy for president in 1992, he's been, um, he really understood what a massive undertaking that would come to be. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, it, when eventually uh, there was, uh, I guess it was the executive order uh, that he was moving towards, but then he had to compromise with don't ask, don't tell. What was your reaction at the time? Was, was that the best solution at that moment? Well, for those of us that were working on it, and I, you know, I have to give full credit to National Gay and Lesbian Task Force because it was the only national organization that had a formal military project. So I was hired by uh, former Executive Director Perry Jude Ratajkowski to run the Military Freedom Initiative, and there were a lot of people that had been working on these issues, even uh, including the ACLU. Um, People at the National Lawyers Guild, uh, you know, lawyers, uh, Frank Kameny, who actually handled my case when I was, uh, you know, in the legal battle with the Army on my status. I mean, there have been people have been working on this for years and years and years. And I would like to remind, because I know, I, I know you're hosting Barney Frank. Uh, Barney Frank, you know, was talking to the White House during these deliberations, of course, many of us testified before Congress in 93. Myself, I testified. We had House hearings. We had Senate hearings. Uh, Barney cut a deal with the, with the president and said, you know, we'll compromise if you help us on security clearances. Uh, Barney and I agreed to disagree on that, and I thought it was premature. Uh, I would say to you that um, it was a difficult place for the president, no question. Uh, but I think what did happen, whether or not it was premature or not, what happened was the first national conversation about what it meant to be gay in America, gay or lesbian, and what were we as citizens if we were not included in the most basic way in defending our country in uniform. And so I would argue that that was the first codification of discrimination that absolutely had to come down without us really moving forward, because there had already been a series of repeals on sodomy, and as we know, that would come to pass in Lawrence v. Texas much later in 2003, and there had been a considerable advancement. Also, the Desert Storm veterans came home. There had been legal action by Marion Bin Shalom, Perry Watkins. Other people would come to pass under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, like Greta Kammermeyer and Margaret, uh, Margaret Flynn. Uh, but, you know, there were – it was, it was heartbreaking. I have to be honest with you, it was really heartbreaking. It was a huge loss at so, the time. We felt it was a huge loss because discrimination still existed and would still go on to, uh, as I told you, almost 20,000 people were discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So then you fast forward to uh, President Obama's action. What was that moment like for you uh, uh, when this was lifted? Well, I just can't even begin to describe what it was like. It was almost surreal. And, of course, 
uh, all of us were there together. I think we were at the Department of Interior because it was such a big event. And it was like a reunion uh, of many of us who were at the barricades for a long time. Uh, and, you know, you just couldn't believe it. When, it. when the Senate passed the revocation was really the only time I've really ever cried. I mean, I did cry on that vote. But it was an unbelievable feeling that, you know, you had been, it was 36 years uh, from the time I enlisted till the revocation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell over half my life. And it has been, a, you know, a touchstone for me about discrimination and citizenship. Who is a citizen? Who is an equal citizen? Um, and that, that question was answered when when President Barack Obama signed signed a law. So let's go to the current president, because in his yes. view, uh, the trans community are not equal citizens because of, you know, you look at just even this one uh, action that's been that's taken place about banning transgendered persons from serving in the military. Are you worried in this political climate that this is going to snowball and we're going to see these other additional gains for gays and lesbians to serve in the military, that they could be reversed? I think um, everyone should be deeply, deeply concerned. The actions taken, and let's give President Obama and my colleagues Sue uh, Fulton and Allison Robinson and Bryn Tannehill, I was one of the founders of SPARTA, which spearheaded the successful effort to secure open trans service, and then this was reversed under the current administration in February 2018, um, I think we should all be deeply, deeply concerned. They have obviously are targeting transgender people. Uh, stopping this was, um, was dis- disapproved. I mean, the Joint Chiefs supported the adoption of this policy of open trans service, and it is the unfortunate... Um, the unfortunate casualty of an election result that is still, you know, we're all reeling from. It's a very serious situation because not only are they targeting people who are serving in the military, which uh, was allowed through a certain period of time and now it's no longer permitted to enlist as an openly trans person, but they're also attacking trans people through Title IX, uh, the a definition of uh, as the legal uh, basis for some of these rulings that was was actually determined by our colleague Kai Feldblum in the EEOC. They're going after them at HHS with a new definition of gender dysphoria and who is trans. Um, they're, they're really working to place trans people outside of the law. And it's frightening. And yes, I do believe they will push forward if they can, on marriage and the other benefits that have been extended, without a doubt. So, Tanya, we've got just about a minute left, and I really do want to note that you've been a strong advocate on a number of other issues internationally as well. In the time we have left, can you talk a little about your other work that you've been up to? Sure. Thank you so much. I am writing a book on uh, the LGBT movement in the Balkan region, southeastern Europe, on the 29th of this month, North Macedonia will celebrate its first pride. It is the second to the last 
country to do so. And on September 8th, I will be in Sarajevo for Sarajevo Pride. And it is remarkable not only to know what we have accomplished here and also what's at risk, but what we are witnessing around the world. And in a place like the Balkans, which is in many, for many people is, you know, and off the beaten track, people are coming out all over. And there's no question that millennials in those countries, as well as some of the older leadership, have really persevered. And um, we're seeing remarkable change. Of course, there is violence. There's, a, there's also pushback. This happens here. It happens everywhere. But the solidarity effort, they are very smart in the Balkans. They have been doing a lot of work across with women, environmental groups. They're working in solidarity against genocide denial. I've done a, I am a scholar on that region. And, of course, one of the legacies of that region is horrible targeting of Muslims, and we understand anybody, once somebody is targeted, all of us can be targeted, and that is probably my greatest learning post-U.S. LGBT politics. What I've learned has been in solidarity with a lot of people who have tremendously suffered, lost their entire families, and now it's time here in America and around the world, that we all stand together against intolerance, xenophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia. We all have to be together. Tanya Domi, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI. Thanks very much. So in focusing on the strides made since Stonewall, it's important to recognize the level of advocacy during the 1980s amid the uh, beginning and the evolution of the AIDS crisis. In 1987, with AIDS deaths in the thousands and government policy still criminally indifferent, activists formed ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Powder, with the sentiment, turn anger, fear, and grief into action. And over the span of its history, ACT UP helped to transform the world's consciousness about HIV and AIDS and made activism a vital part of the LGBT political landscape. So our next guest is a man who is known as the boy with a bullhorn, which is in fact the title of his upcoming book. Ron Goldberg is a writer and an activist and as a member of ACT UP from from its infancy in the uh, in uh, 1987, he was the lead organizer for many of the group's major demonstrations and participated in countless actions. Ron Goldberg, welcome to WBAI. Wow, thank you. <laughs> so how did you get involved at the time with ACT UP? Um, well, uh, I've been looking, I mean, I've been looking for something, some way to get involved uh, with the community. I'd grown up, uh, a Jewish kid growing up in Long Island, and I was sort of, I grew up with the idea of the Holocaust, you know, sort of implanted in my head. And the question always is, you're growing up, was like, okay, how would I have reacted? I mean, not you could ever know, but it's like, how would I have reacted, you know, if, uh, but I have fled, but I have fought. Um, as growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was in the civil rights movement, like, oh, would I have been a freedom writer? Would I have you know, joined the March on Washington? Uh, would I have fought against the Vietnam War? You know, so how do, you, how do you stand up? How do you show up when your community is under siege or when your beliefs are under siege? Uh, something which might be familiar to everybody nowadays. Um, so um, 
I was actually looking to get involved with the March on Washington, which was a big march in 1987. And I went to... Uh, for LGBT rights, and I went to uh, the center for a meeting, and it was less than I hoped. But coming into the next room was this other group, and I figured out pretty quickly that it was it was ACT UP, which I had read about in the Native, uh, which was the local uh, gay paper at the time. And I said, okay, let me just stick around and see. And it was, I mean, it sounds, you know, a lot, but it was sort of a life-changing experience. It was so powerful, and the energy and uh, uh, the the intellect and the smartness of what was going on. I didn't understand half of what they were talking about, but it was just okay. This is this is it. This is something I can get involved with. I have to be here. So, talk a little about your role, because you know uh, I'm fascinated by, of course, you know the title of the book, "The Boy with the Bullhorn." How did you know? Were you always an outgoing personality? How did this happen? Yeah, I was a theater queen. Uh, still am. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a performer, and there was there was something about Act Up. Frankly, it was like, hey, Mickey, Judy, let's put on a demonstration. Um, so I, I certainly got that. The theatrics, you know, certainly uh, appealed to me. Um, and I just, I had training, um, so I could yell at demonstrations. And I realized, um, a, I was good at it. I was a good cheerleader. Um, and it was also something. I learned sort of later, which was that, or figured out later, which is the chants were sort of like an armor for us. I mean, we were going out into these hostile public spaces, and if you could channel, you know, sort of the emotion, whether it was anger or whatever, it sort of created this protective space. Um, you know, and if you said a chant with a certain feeling, it not only unified the group and gave everyone, um, you know, this feeling of, of power, but it also kind of kept other people at bay. And then, of course, I mean, the real point of chance is that they're they're sound bites. It's you know when the when the TV was when the video cameras were on, you know, what is it you want to say and say it and with rhythm, <laughs> and that's what a chant is. And I just sort of doing. I was I wasn't the only person by any means uh, chanting or writing these things, but I sort of became the the head the head cheerleader, uh, the chant queen or as I sometimes called myself, the Chantus. So ACT UP was known for provocative demonstrations. Can you give me give me an anecdote, an example of one where you were involved that really helped to bring AIDS awareness to the fore? Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of demonstrations. Uh, I mean, I think one that, that immediately sort of pops out to me uh, is one of our larger ones, uh, and probably one of the ones that are most well-known is the, the one at the FDA. Um, the Food and Drug Administration, and it was an odd target because I mean, what they were responsible for was, you know, approving approving experimental drugs, and we'd identified that there was a logjam there, and there were all these potentially useful drugs uh, that were just getting locked up in these trials that were taking eight years, and we didn't have, you know, eight months, let alone eight years. Um, and, you know, we had to educate ourselves. And we had to, about how the organ, FDA worked and what was going on, but we also had to educate the media and the public. And we educated the public through the media. So it was really this sort of concerted campaign of, you know, getting information out to them, sending them packets, uh, doing teach-ins internally, um, and sort of identifying local people with AIDS and HIV so that the story became a local story. Um, and so when we had this massive demonstration, which was a connection of um, uh, 
people across this Act Now network, which was a network of AIDS activist organizations across the country. And we had people from across the country show up at the FDA, which is in like, you know, Bethesda, or actually it's in, um, well, close enough. Um, <laughs> and we, it, we just sort of took over and laid siege, you know, to the FDA, uh, the seize control of the FDA with the demonstration. And the press was just like astonished. It was just, we had... I mean, it was almost like a, a, a weird sort of carnival. We had protesters lying down with, you know, tombstones over their heads going, you know, died for lack of, you know, DHPG. Uh, we had, you know, flags, uh, flags going up flagpoles. There was an effigy of Ronald Reagan. There were groups selling um, uh, drugs that were at the time not unapproved drugs. We had just, just all these different groups from different uh, cities and places, and the media went crazy over it. And it became a front-page story on the local papers because we had these local people. Um, and that changed. It changed the way the FDA, you know, which was formerly a sort of backwater, you know, uh, institution, you know, became front-page news. And suddenly they had to react. And we became a force. Um, and there's actually an interesting story, if I can add. It's just when the story went public, when the newspapers printed it, uh, the New York Times, everyone else had these fabulous photos. The New York Times had this one shot of it was this one protester his hand, you know, hands were over his head you couldn't see him there was no identifying you know anything on him surrounded by police and in a lot of ways that was the image of people with aids right they were isolated they were alone they were they were ashamed their faces were covered one year later the times had another photo which was on an article in the week in review about you know how the fda had changed and it was a full you know, width photo of Act up protesters, there's this line of them with their backs to the camera, you know, their hands clasped over their heads in these white lab coats with, you know, red handprints marching towards this phalanx of police where in the background the FDA is covered with like silent signals, death posters and signs and banners. And it's like in a year, that was the difference in the image. That was the difference in how we were seen, isolated and alone and suddenly powerful, challenging authority standing up, you know, for our lives. So, Ron, in the few moments we have left, uh, you know, what's re what I really find amazing about your experience is you regularly speak with high school and college students about ACT UP. What do you want them to take away from uh, all of the work that ACT UP and you did? What is its legacy? Um, I, when I go to high schools, what I really want to tell them is, is you can do this. I mean, as we historicize what we do, it, it makes it seem like we always knew what we were doing. Um, and we didn't. We made it up. We, we improvised. And the idea is that, I mean, and that's part of what my book is about as well, is this sort of education of an activist. Sort of, you start in thinking this thing, and as you go through, you realize, oh, you know, there's intersectionality. This is related to this. And, oh, my God, this is this. And you start putting together, um, you know, what it means to be an activist. And I tell them all the time that the thing to do is find what you're passionate about, and get in a room with people. You have to be in the room. I mean, it's, it's great that you can, you know, do your, you know, your phone, your, your digital connections, but that'll only get you so far. You need to be in a room and talk about things and build and come back week after week and figure out what needs to be done and how to do it. And you can do it. I've seen it. I've been a part of something where individuals changed, you know, changed the, the, the way... A disease progressed. I mean, it was really an astonishing, a privilege to be a part of it. 
So, Ron Goldberg, how can people learn more about you and about your upcoming book, Boy with a Bullhorn? Sure. Ooh, the plug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can, um, I've got a website. It's uh, www.boywiththebullhorn, one word, dot com. And there's an excerpt there actually on um, – I, put up, I just put up an excerpt on what we did for Stonewall 20, which is when we had a renegade march and, uh, you know, and, and sort of what that experience was and what it was like in 1989 uh, to, to run a march without police approval, uh, without permits up Fifth Avenue to Central Park. Ron Goldberg, thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI. Thank you. Thank so if you have been uh, tuning in today, you have been listening to me, Jeff Simmons, here uh, lead our stone, lead off our Stonewall coverage, Pride, Progress, and Politics, 50 Years Since Stonewall. And if you are a devoted WBAI listener, if you are sitting home and you are reflecting on Stonewall and what it meant to you, we have a gift for you. You can receive a CD from the Pacific Radio Archives by donating today. Today, in fact, is the final day of our spring. Uh, fundraising drive. You just have to call 516-620-3602. Now, this CD is called Remembering Stonewall, a radio documentary on the birth of a movement. If you have been fascinated by the history of Stonewall and the rights uh, that many of us have achieved over the last five decades, this is something you definitely want to receive for a $50 donation. When you call 516-620-3602, you can receive this CD. And this program uses views of the participants. It looks at gay life both before and after Stonewall and its impact upon gay politics and the history in, uh, in the United States. You just have to pledge at 516-620-3602. There's other ways you can pledge too. Uh, really simple to just go online to give to, that is the number two, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org. And if you're listening to us while we're streaming at WBAI.org, well, maybe you're on your phone right now. Just go on your smartphone and text WBAI to 41444. Multiple ways you can help us out. Why is this important? Because we've been around for 60 years and we are, Sean and I, are sitting in this one room right now that's not soundproof, but our More Than Mike's campaign is trying to raise $10,000, and we are getting there, according to Linda, who emailed me a short while ago, that we are getting close to that $10,000, so every $50 will help. I even posted a photo on uh, my Twitter of what the radio room uh, will look like, uh, or looks like right now. You could tell we're getting there. Uh, my Twitter's at Jack Heights, and you could check out that photo in my Twitter stream today uh, and see you know, how beautiful it's going to be. You won't hear the traffic outside or the rain overhead when when there's a thunderstorm, it'll be so much better than the quality of the sound you have right now. And I think the quality is relatively good, but it will be exceptional. Every $50 you contribute will get us closer to that goal. You just have to call 516-620-3602. And if you donate $50 today, let them know that you would like to receive the CD from Pacifica Radio Archives. It's called Remembering Stonewall, a radio documentary on the birth of a movement. It's narrated by Michael Shirker. It's produced by David Isay. It's got a number of voices from the uh, Lesbian History Archives, Jim For uh, Forat. 
the deputy NYPD inspector Seymour Pine. Uh, just watched an interview with him uh, when he talked about the raid uh, of Stonewall uh, back in 1969. And also Sylvia Rivera is also in that CD. So I encourage you, if you love WBAI, if WBAI has been a part of your life, to please give a pledge today at 516-620-3602. So with that, we're going to go to our next guest. Stonewall did not necessarily open up the floodgates to coming out right away. While it catalyzed the gay liberation movement, coming out was still was and is a deeply personal experience for many of us. Um, we have witnessed the trend of outing hypocritical politicians. We watched a number of prominent figures, celebrities also long suspected of being closeted, being outed or coming out themselves. Well, our next guest is Andrew Tobias. He's the author of a number of books on investment, politics, insurance and other issues. But among his works is the groundbreaking memoir, The Best Little Boy in the World, about growing up gay which was first published in 1973, just a few years after Stonewall. And when he first wrote the book, it was published under a pseudonym. We'll talk with him about that coming up right now. Andrew, welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much. So let's talk about your experience first. You were, if I have it correctly, you were 22 years old when Stonewall took place. Um, Tell me a little about where you were at that time and your earliest recollections. I was uh, working crazy hours as a little entrepreneur type guy on uh, uh, in the time light building back then maybe 18 hours a week uh, a day and, and uh, 12 anyway uh, and so I was deeply closeted the reason I was working so hard is I had all this uh, repressed sexual energy and all that and I had been keeping the secret since I was 10 when I realized my big problem and um, it had been 12 years of uh, <laughs> Of dealing with it, and I have to tell you that I I probably read some headlines or heard something on the radio about Stonewall, but it didn't really relate to me exactly. Um, of course, it did tremendously, but I I didn't feel it then, and um, so I was still struggling with being in the closet. The following year, everything changed, but uh, not because of the march. Just that was the year I turned 23, and I finally came out, and the whole world became different for me. And what made you the, you know, quote, best little boy in the world? Well, <laughs> my I had wonderful parents who loved me dearly, and, and they uh, kept telling me how wonderful I was, like a lot of, uh, a lot of kids' parents do. Uh, I was foolish enough to believe it. And I was very competitive, and I tried real hard. And, and like, as I say, I had all that repressed energy that had no place to go while everybody else was going out having normal teenage experiences and falling in love and all that. I was writing extra credit reports or, or, you know, doing something to try to get better grades or, uh, you know, swimming an extra mile before classes in the morning. So um, uh, it was kind of a, I only, I I hadn't planned to use a title like that. My God, what a title. But the editor of the book uh, pulled that out from something that was in the text and said, no, this is what we got to call the book. So ever since, it's sort of, stuck. So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's got to be a lot of fear that you're going through at that moment when you're publishing a book, even if it's under a pseudonym. I mean, I came out publicly, I came out publicly in a newspaper article when I worked uh, for a newspaper in northern New Jersey, uh, a short while before I had turned 30. Uh, And, you know, that was one of the scariest moments and yet one of the most empowering ones in my life. Talk to me about that experience, you know, of, you know, what, 
you know, prompted you to say, I've got to publish this uh, and about the fear you had about being, I guess, exposed because you use a pseudonym? Well, uh, once I finally did kind of break out of my shell and I started coming out, every person I, uh, all straight people at first, every straight friend that I told, it was just more and more exhilarating. And so it wasn't really fear of I was bursting to have this, to write this book and bursting to have it come out. But the one thing, like, certainly not alone this, but the one, the only people, the people at work, I was writing for New York Magazine at the time, and and the editors of New York knew, and, and they actually even excerpted it under a pen name. The only people I hadn't told were my parents, uh, because, you know, they were of a different generation, and I was so terribly afraid that, uh, you know, they would be really unhappy and, uh, and upset uh, or just embarrassed to their friends, because the world was so different back then. This was still pretty much a terrible thing to be if your parents were of that generation, um, or you were from Mississippi even today. But um, anyway, uh, so that was it, and it, and it took, it was uh, a long time before I told my folks, uh, and they wound up, especially my dad, uh, taking it so well, and, and eventually my mother became a huge fan and totally fell in love with my long-term partner, who, uh, and one thing or another. But um, what, what kids don't you know, just can't know the, the, uh, now, having not been around, the world was so different in 1973, uh, you know, let alone earlier. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't have my parents know. And the book was reprinted when it was, uh, uh, and uh, in, at the same time, uh, you also had the follow-up, The Best Little Boy in the World Grows Up, and, you know, you were using your real name at that point. By, by, by then, you were much more open publicly. How dramatically had society's perception of, uh, of LGBT changed since your youth? Well, it's, it's so night and day. I could never have dreamed when I was 10 or 16 or or even 22, um, or for that matter, older, but I could never have dreamed that we would have gotten to the point that uh, an openly gay married man would be a plausible candidate for President of the United States, um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and that the, uh, the, the closeted, the one guy in at college who I realized, oh my God, I'm not the only one. There's a, one of the resident tutors, um, I realized, was looking at the same guys I was looking at. And I finally realized, oh, there's somebody else at college who has the same terrible problem I do. But why does it have to be he's like old? He's like 28 or something. And, you know, I was, uh, he was a resident tutor, and I was a, and his name uh, was Barney Frank. And he went on to you know, <laughs> become chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. And my hero, I think you're having him on a little bit later. But the, I, and I attended his wedding. I mean, there we were. I was 18 or 19. He was 27 or something. And I'm thinking, I certainly wasn't going to talk to him about it. And he didn't talk to me about it. He didn't realize I had caught on. But to go from a time when we both probably thought we're the only ones, basically, and we could never, ever, ever have anybody know. And then fast forward, I'm, you know, one of the groomsmen in his wedding, attended by the Speaker of the House and the Secretary of State and presided over by... uh, the, the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, so the, it, the, the changes have been night and day, um, and they just uh, hopefully they will keep coming, although we've got 
we've got to get the White House and the Senate back to keep making progress. But we're hearts and minds have opened, and I don't think they can easily close back again. I, I think we've made strides that can't uh, be easily reversed. And and you served as treasurer of the uh, Democratic National Committee uh, from 1999 to 2017. You've been a strong opponent of a number of Republican efforts. As we look at the progress since 1969, what goes through your mind about the, you know, the state of our nation right now and the advances that we've made? Well, look, first of all, uh, for all these decades, Republicans, with a few exceptions, but Republicans have basically always opposed any progress towards equality, always. And uh, Democrats, you know, in 1973 or in 1969, uh, most Democrats were also kind of horrified by this notion. But as we've gotten into the modern times, and, and once Bill Clinton was elected, uh, and, and ever since, and certainly Barack Obama and so many of our champions in Congress, uh, on almost LGBT issue, uh, Democrats have been, uh, been uh, and also at the state and local level in, in most states, uh, Democrats have been on our side and Republicans have been on the other side. Uh, now, uh, you know, the House has passed the Equality Act. We should be demanding that the Senate pass the Equality Act. And by the way, the House has also passed eight other acts about health care and universal background checks and all that. In addition to the impeachment stuff, Everybody, every time the word impeachment comes up, uh, we all should say, and all our talking heads should say, yeah, impeachment, impeachment is important, but why do, in, the, in, the, in the meantime, the Senate has to take up these bills. The House has passed these nine bills, including the Equality Act. We should be marching on Washington, marching on the Senate, to demand they do it. And, I mean, I don't think they probably will, but if they don't, people will see that not only are the Republicans obstructing justice, they're obstructing progress, as they did throughout the... Obama years. Uh, and if they do pass the Equality Act, good for them. Uh, you know, uh, that would be great. So, yeah, politics, hugely important. And I never dreamed that it would be such a big part of my life, but it is. And the country is in deep, deep, deep trouble with an autocrat who is literally a sociopath and literally a pathological liar. And, you know, the American century ended exactly on time. It started in 1917 when we entered World War One. And it ended January 20th, 2017, 100 years later to the day, uh, more or less. So, yeah. So he started. So I, in the final <laughs> minute, I do want to end on something just a bit lighter because a few of our guests today have talked about uh, their connections with this uh, radio station, WBAI. Isn't it true that WBAI is the first radio station that you ever did? And talk to me about that. Yeah. 1963, I was 16. I had just come back from three months behind the Iron Curtain, uh, a uh, kind of a, a starstruck uh, utopian, not exactly a communist, but uh, very much my eyes have been opened that not everything about America is perfect and not everything about the Soviet uh, Union is terrible. At least their intentions in some ways are good. And I had all these little records I brought back, uh, 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 45, you know, 45 RPM, if anybody's old enough to remember that. And uh, I had been, I listened to WBAI a lot. I don't remember exactly why, but uh, it seemed to be my station, and certainly in terms of liberal and so on and so forth. I was in high school, and I think I, I called. I called the number at one point, and I said, listen, um, I got these, this, this Soviet uh, music, which is kind of great, and I thought you might want to play it. 
And they said, oh, great. Well, listen, we'll have you come and, and be interviewed. So by, and I was terrified, needless to say, and, uh, but I somehow got through it. And, and uh, I've had a very warm spot in my heart for WBAI ever since. And that's, what, 50, uh, 56 years ago, something like that, long time ago. Andy Tobias, thank you so much for joining us. How can people learn more about you and your work? AndrewTobias.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, Andy was just talking about uh, coming to the WBAI studios. And as I look around the room, I think, you know what? Some of this equipment probably is still the same as when he was in this studio, which is why we're having our pledge drive. I know Sean's shaking his head at me right now, which is why we would really love if you're listening to the special and you could just show a little support today. It would be fantastic. The number to pledge to is 516-620-3602. Our More Than Mike's campaign is getting close to that $10,000 goal. I was sitting in the studio a space right down the hall earlier today, and it is looking much better. The quality of the programming, um, the sound quality is going to be extremely, extremely better. So you could just pledge at 516-620-3602. Every $50 is going to count. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org or even text WBAI uh, to 41444. So just a a week or so ago, I visited the New York Historical Society, which is commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising and the dawn of the gay liberation movement with Stonewall 50, which features two exhibitions and a special installation. They were unveiled on May 24th, and they'll be on view through late September. As Luis Mirror, president and CEO of the Historical Society, said the exhibitions showcase the critical role played by Stonewall in helping our nation towards a more perfect Perfect union. So joining me now to talk about the exhibitions are Rebecca Klassen, Assistant Curator of Material Culture, and Rachel Corbman, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Predoctoral Fellow in Women's History. Welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much for having us Thank on. You. So I'd like to start with you, Rebecca. You curated Letting Loose and Fighting Back LGBTQ Nightlife Before and After Stonewall and work collaboratively on the other exhibitions. Can you Give our listeners a brief overview of the installations and what they can expect to see. Sure. Um, Well, Letting Loose and Fighting Back starts with the simple fact that the Stonewall Uprising centered on a routine police raid of a mafia-owned gay bar and um, uses that to explore the history of LGBTQ bars, clubs, and nightlife in New York City uh, from the mid-1950s through the 1990s. So it includes about 180 objects, many of them are intimate in scale, and they're installed in a small gallery that's designed to resemble a bar. And then it continues with a coda section that does a deeper dive through the portraits, um, if you will, uh, for nightlife icons who are known for their activism or their community building. And then across from that coda section is Say It Loud, Out and Proud, 50 Years of Pride, which draws viewers in with a, a beautiful photo mural that stitches together 50-plus years of marchers um, to present a timeline of significant political and cultural milestones and then brings in artifacts and ephemera to to further illustrate um, some of those key moments. And then on the opposite side of this corridor is um, By the Force of Our Presence, highlights from the Lesbian Herstory Archives, uh, which brings together about 90 objects, um, including uh, gorgeous posters and... um, really captivating ephemera to illustrate um, um, lesbian history through their holdings. 
So, Rebecca, in the exhibition Letting Loose and Fighting Back, uh, you know, which explored the history of bars, clubs, nightlife, how has nightlife been critical in shaping LGBTQ identity? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, nightlife has really been a space where individuals could try to meet their basic emotional, social, and spiritual needs, um, while at the same time, you know, they were facing marginalization for who they were. So naturally, these were places where people could discover who they were, um, feel a sense of freedom, um, meet people um, who were like them, and and join in conversations of shared resistance. Um, so these places were also incubators for for wonderful developments in music and performance and dance. Um, so. So, uh, and Rebecca, I realize there are hundreds of objects in the exhibition. Talk about one that stands out to you and the story behind it. Well, I really love the symbolism behind Rollerina's roller skates. Um, Rollerina was a Wall Street worker um, who, in 1972, began transforming herself into this fairy godmother figure. And she'd, she'd roll down the streets of New York, blessing people with a circus baton wand and wearing this fluffy-skirted um, pink gown and uh, pillbox hat and very extravagant um, eyewear. Um, and she became an icon of discos like Studio 54, and uh, it's quite possible that she was a spark for the roller disco trend of the late 1970s. And then in the 1980s, she was an AIDS activist. Um, but an underlying story, um, aspect of Rollerina's story is that she had been drafted into the Vietnam War in 1968, and the physical sensation, of the, the freeing sensation of skating was what helped her really process her traumatic memories of jungle warfare. Um, so in a sense, she transformed herself into a symbol of magic and, and ultimate um, cultural and social freedom in order to free herself and to become a beacon for the freedom of others. And uh, she was at your launch event, and there actually is a, a wonderful piece in the Sunday Review section of the Times that talks about her today that I encourage our listeners uh, to check out. Rachel, the the installation "Say It Loud," uh, "Say It Loud," "Out and Proud," fifty years of pride includes imagery from the city's pride marches and LGBTQ protests from the '60s to the present day. Talk to me a little about the timeline. I'm sure there were many milestones and dates in history that could have been included. Uh, how did you select many of the dates? Featured along the timeline? Yeah, so our um, primary goal in putting together the timeline was for it to serve as a teaching tool. And to, I mean, timelines are obviously like chronological in in nature, that's what they are. Um, But we were trying to present the information chronologically without suggesting that like it was a progress narrative from like um, gay people being oppressed and that gay people are now magically not oppressed. so we were thinking a lot about um, scale, that we wanted it to, since we're at the New York Historical Society, to have like moments that were important to New York, but we also wanted to tell a national story. And then also the other thing that we were thinking about in putting together the timeline uh, was that we, didn't wanna, that we wanted to think about the complexity of LGBTQ as a historical category and not just default to a history of um, white gay men, for example and to think about the different ways that LGBTQ is a, a complex category along um, different identity categories, different genders, and um, along lines of race and class as well. 
So uh, talk to me about the other exhibition by the force of our presence highlights from the lesbian history archives, which looks at lesbian lives pre and post Stonewall. This, this was curated by a committee from the lesbian history archives. What is the uh, uh, lesbian history archives and its history and mission? Yeah. So um, the lesbian history archives is a volunteer run archive that collects any and all material about um, lesbian lives and culture and activism. Um, And so the archives was originally founded in um, 1974 in New York. And so that's five years after Stonewall. And it's very much a part of an an extension of that political moment. And um, so the collection was actually uh, originally housed in one of the co-founders, Joe Nestle's apartment on the Upper West Side. And then it moved to its own building in the early 1990s in Park Slope. And it's currently now the um, oldest and the largest collection that's exclusively focused on lesbian uh, material in the world. Uh, And and Rachel, what are the themes of this exhibition? Yeah, so um, I think the exhibition makes a few interventions in terms of how the history of LGBT activism is usually told. Uh, first and probably most importantly, it's, uh, it centers the history of women and specifically lesbians to a broader um, history of LGBT social movements in the United States. And then um, second, as you've already kind of mentioned, um, it begins in a pre-Stonewall context, and um, specifically it opens with the story of um, Mabel Hampton, who was a black lesbian who was born at around the turn of the century and um, was involved in what was a vibrant queer subculture during the Harlem Renaissance. And so um, with Mabel Hampton and other examples from um, the first half of the exhibition, it kind of puts pressure on the idea that um, LGBT culture took shape after Stonewall. And then um, finally, it also kind of suggests some some of the ways in which if we look at lesbian history, the history looks different um, than uh, if we look at LGBT history more broadly. So, uh, and and Rebecca, I do want to mention that... uh, it's not just about the exhibitions, but there are always uh, programs tied to exhibitions. Can you talk a little about what's on the horizon? Uh, everything from, from family events to more serious scholarly talks um, this Thursday and, and beyond. Um, this Tuesday, sorry, uh, there's a walking tour of the Upper West Side with the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project team. Uh, they were collaborator advisors on the nightlife exhibition, so I know that they are fantastic. And uh, they'll stop at sites like James Baldwin's residence and um, gay bars in the 1950s. And then we're also doing a time, li- a time capsule in collaboration with the Generations Project that I'm really excited about. And um, there are collection dates listed on our website. But I'm most excited about our history mashup events, uh, like the Revolutionary Drag Tea Party that we're doing on July 14th, which will be hosted by Murray Hill. The hilarious comedian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I personally plan to debut my role as ex Benedict Arnold. So <laughs> hopefully you'll find me there <laughs> in full flair. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Murray Hill. Uh, Rachel, can you, uh, in closing, can you tell people where they can go to learn more about the exhibitions and the programming, and of course get tickets? Yeah, so um, newyorkhistory.org is the website of the New York Historical Society. Um, newyorkhistory.org slash um, backslash pride has information specifically about um, the exhibition. Or um, you can drop by the New York Historical Society, which is 170 Central Park West. So it's nyhistory.org. 
Great. Well, Rebecca Klassen, Assistant Curator of Material Culture, and Rachel Corbin, Andrew W. Mellon, Foundation Predoctoral Fellow in Women's History, both affiliated with the exhibitions at the New York Historical Society. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI. Thank you. So a few moments ago, they just mentioned uh, Joan Nessel. Uh, who is founder of the Lesbian Herstory Archives. In fact, she is one of the voices that you will hear on the CD that we are offering you, our listeners, today, uh, called Remembering Stonewall for just a $50 donation. Uh, there are a number of voices we hear on the CD, and I want to thank Pacifica Radio Archives for, for getting this to us. Today is the last day of our spring fundraising drive, and, uh, and we also have this wonderful opportunity for you to receive this CD. You just have to call 516-620-3602. You go online at give Two, that is the number two, WBAI.org, or you could just text to w, text WBAI to 41444. Again, my name is Jeff Simmons. You are listening to WBAI. This is our special Stonewall 50 coverage. We'll be back in a few minutes with some amazing guests. <laughs> Since liberation in between breaths Wonder if sex is what she found it in Peace, found it, lay it down with men Wasn't there to judge her, many ways I loved her It was more than bodies we shared with each other We lay under the cover of friends A place where men need lovers began I began, feel a body shake in my hand Body language, it's a hard trying to understand Usually after sex, it's a good feel Took by silence, emotions still still To feel, tears spill from a grill Heard from before that began to build She told me, hold me The story she assembled it Telling it, trying not to remember it It was the story of innocence taken Thought she could redeem through love making When she was eight, she was raped by a father And tried to escape through multiple sex partners Felt pitiful, she had only learned To love through the physical, inside it burned My hard turned I thought of what this man did She forgave him, she grew to understand it Her soul was tired and never really rested Only knew men through aggression Said it was a blessing and it happened for a reason By speaking it, she found freedom Between me and you Sometimes I wish I could Still could Once in a while, to watch an adult become in a child somehow. I knew she'd make it, the life of one so given early would God take it. Her she placed in hope and prayer. Her she placed in chemo and lost hair. I stared with my eyes closed, wonder when the body leave, does the mind go? Watching Jordan became less important. Seeing this disease eat away my aunt's organs, according to doctors, it's no cure. We went through doubt. 
and cases of insure. Wish I knew then how to heal with herbs. Knew a part of her I could heal with words, but the creator was sinning for. Which seemed like the end was the beginning for. Like that, she didn't want us to remember her. No more medication did she want us to give to her. It spread from her liver to her lungs to her last breath. Only to be free through death. Between me and you, between me and you. Between me and you. Sometimes I wish I 